Hi, I'm Matt. What? Are you? Hi, I'm Matt. Hi. Hi, I'm Matt. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Lauren. And this is the Out of Time Podcast. Welcome to episode one. We'll be bringing you episodes on a variety of topics, from history and mysteries to mythology and murder. Hopefully there'll be something here for everyone. And since we're launching very close to Halloween, if all goes to plan, we thought we'd start with a spooky one. So today we're going to be talking about some of the strange goings-on that have happened in Preston Manor in Brighton, which is actually very local to us. Yeah, and I never realised what an interesting history it had, architecturally, as far as the owners, and as you found out, very much the paranormal. Yeah, a lot of paranormal, and I really think it's an interesting place to start. Okay, so should we just get into it? Yeah. Preston Manor is a Grade 2 listed building owned by Brighton and Hove City Council, which currently operates as a museum, offering public tours of the historic home and event hire. Can you imagine if we were now looking for somewhere to get married and we chose here no it would be weird uh, but it is very beautiful it is the inside is stunning but i would be thinking about it all and i'd I'd just be so distracted but behind the stunning edwardian style decor and the history of influential residents lies a darker past one full of ghosts supernatural phenomena and in 1897 a discovery was made within the grounds that could give us the answer as to why preston manor has long been considered the most haunted house in Brighton. That's very strange to think about because until quite recently we had no idea about all the strange things that were happening so close to us. Yeah we're really close to Brighton and even just the last couple of weeks doing some research on things that we wanted to talk about we stumbled upon it and it's been fascinating. So let's get into the history of the building to start with. The name Preston is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word meaning priests holding which suggests a settlement existed in that area in Saxon times. So I think we're talking about the 9th century, somewhere around there. In 1806, the manor was listed in the Doomsday Book. In the what? I know, it sounds really ominous, doesn't it? Can you imagine your house being listed in a Doomsday Book? Um, It's not ominous. It's just a record of land ownership and value that William the Conqueror had made for tax reasons, basically. So it's listed as one of eight manors belonging to the Bishopric of Chichester. At that time, it's likely that the main structure would have been a timber-framed one. Certainly none of that remains today. The survey recorded the assets of the manor as the house itself, a mill, 12 ploughs with a team of eight oxen, as well as a church. Altogether, that would have given the manor a worth of around £25. And we're not sure about how much that would convert today's money? No, but I think it's fair to say that it, it was a substantial amount. Yeah, it's going back a long time. It is. It's a very long time. According to the Brighton Museum website, the manor lands comprised of, and this is a direct quote, the greater part of the parish of Preston, large parts of what is now Hove, part of the parish of Bolney and minor lands elsewhere. While the manor and lands were owned by the bishops, they would have been administrated by a steward or a bailiff. This went on for around 470 years before the bishops began renting the lands directly to tenants around 1500. A quick note that Parliament passed the Act of Exchanges in 1559. In basic terms, this allowed Elizabeth I to trade the church property which was in the possession of the crown for temporal or non-spiritual land which belonged to the church. The church lost a lot of wealth as a result of these property exchanges and the crown would trade assets of limited value such as rectories and small churches for assets of higher value or those that would generate more of an income including castles and manors. 
such as the one at Preston, which was acquired by the Crown in 1561. Money-grabbing so-and-so. You can't say that we're British. No, I'm absolutely not a royalist. Just stealing from the church, casual. Well, it was a trade. I mean, it was a forced property exchange of much lower value, but it, it was a trade. Edward Elrington was granted the lease by the bishops in 1510. He died in 1515, but his family stayed on and continued to lease the land for sheep farming, even after the crown took possession. His tomb is actually in St Peter's Church, which was built next to the house in the 13th century on the remains of two previous churches, and Edward's step-grandson Anthony Shirley inherited the manor in 1569, and it was his son Thomas who became the first lay lord of Preston Manor, after he bought the lease back from the Crown in 1628. Oh, that's great that the family managed to get the property back. Yeah, well, they went from tenants to owners, and he became a lord, so that's pretty cool. I'm not sure how much he bought it for, but it would have been more. Yeah, well, a lot more than £25. Well, the Crown would have bought it for more than that. There was a long time between that valuation and the Crown acquiring it. It's over 600 years, but I couldn't find the figure, which I'm a bit disappointed about. The manor itself went through significant structural changes in the 1600s and a survey conducted of the house and grounds in 1617 shows that the house was of a substantial size with two sets of rooms, one placed directly behind the other and a central entrance. Classical style entrance doors were also added to the east and west walls and some of the features of these renovations have survived but they are nowhere near their original condition. I think it's mouldings and things like that. At this time, the house would have been constructed of flint and brick with stone dressings. The survey also notes that the grounds contained outhouses, orchards, the gardens, barns and stables. So it's a very nice property. Yeah, I mean, you'd you'd like to say that now, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Preston Manor stayed within the possession of the Shirley family for the next four generations. But when Richard Shirley died unmarried in 1705... The property passed on to his three sisters before sole ownership was taken by one sister, Mary, and her husband, Thomas Weston. So although it's classed as changing families into the Weston's possession, it's only because Thomas was married to Mary. So it's in the same family, but it's the men's name that becomes associated with it. Right. Thomas was part of a successful trading family from Essex, and when he died at age 41, he was succeeded by his son, who was also called Thomas, and his wife, Anne. So another Thomas. Yeah, so the son was called Thomas. So Thomas Sr. died, Thomas Jr. got it, and his wife was called Anne. Ah, okay. And together they had nine children. Oh, I mean, we've got two. And that is enough work, thank you very much. We are not having any more. But actually, four of them died young, unfortunately, which, as horrible as it is, it wasn't unusual for the time, and that's heartbreaking. Definitely. I'm so glad we've come as far as we have, but I I still would not want nine children. In 1738, Thomas had the house demolished and it was rebuilt as a Georgian villa before adding two smaller wings onto the central block two years later. Apparently it was quite fashionable then to have the, the two smaller wings on the sides. And from what I've read, there are remnants of the original house dating back as far as 1250, still found in the basement levels. That's crazy, 1250. Yeah, it's so impressive. So that would be 13th century. So the remains are from around the time that St. Peter's was built, and that was built on the remains of two other churches. So you can see what an interesting history this building has already. Mm. When this Thomas died, the manor and the lands were passed on to two of his sons, 
but one of them exchanged his Sussex estates for one in Essex, and therefore Preston Manor became the property of just one of the brothers, Charles. In 1766, Charles married Francis Shirley Bollen, but tragically, their marriage and his life were cut short when their horse stumbled during a carriage ride and Charles was killed. Oh That's my God. so tragic. I did see in one source that their eldest son was saved because Francis managed to throw the baby like out of the carriage into a bush during the crash, but I don't know how true that is. That'd be insane if just the speed th- that would have happened anyway. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Unsurprisingly, not long after the crash, Francis took their children to Essex and reportedly never returned to Preston Manor, which I can understand because that was their home and I imagine it was difficult to be there without him. The son who was apparently saved from the crash was also called Charles, so we've got a lot of repeated names here. But it was very fashionable, wasn't it, to give your child the parent's name? Well, I think it was very common then because it not only carried on the family name, but it was a name that held esteem within the community. So it made sense back then. I mean, people still do it now. He apparently spent a lot of his life as an advocate of political and agricultural reform. I couldn't find a lot of information apart from that reference, but I might do some further digging because I would really like to know more about him. It was Charles who later sold the property, including around a thousand acres of land which to me is mind-blowing so a lot of what we know is preston park now more way more than just preston park i think what it said that it consisted of a lot of hove bolney so at this point i imagine it was still a big part of what we know as brian and hove but the family that he sold the manor to is the family whose name is now synonymous with preston manor and that is the stanford's The first time Stanford is recorded as having a connection to Preston Manor is in 1758, when Richard Stanford was a tenant of Manor Farm while it was still owned by the Westons. When Richard died in 1769, his property was split equally between his three children. It was his son William who bought Preston Manor in 1794 for the sum of just £17,600. That's mad, isn't it? It is when you think of what 17600 gets you today. It's almost nothing, but again, conversion rates, this was hundreds of years ago. William was already a rich man, given his inheritance from his father and the family were established landowners in Sussex. Later in the 19th century, they were known to strategically acquire land in important locations around Brighton and Hove. So, for a long time, they had a lot of influence, especially over the development of the lands that they chose to buy and sell. Interestingly, when the railway lines were built, they crossed the Stanford estate and the family were awarded £30,000 in compensation for loss of land and the negative impact the construction apparently had on the westerly view from Preston Manor. Ah, so they profited well from the railway. They were very clever with their trading of land, etc. So, yeah, good business people. Yeah, definitely. So, back to William. While it might sound like he had it all, the years leading up to his purchase of Preston Manor were filled with heartache. William had been married to Elizabeth Avery, and they had two children together, but both children passed away in 1790, and their mother Elizabeth then died the following year. Things do improve for William, and in 1802 he gets married again. His new wife was Mary Toole, and she was from Lewis. Ah. So not too far from us. Not far at all. We should probably stop saying how familiar we are with places. It would be so easy to guess where we live for anyone that is listening who doesn't actually know us. They went on to have seven children. Um, Some really interesting facts about William are that he served as High Sheriff of Sussex in 1808 
And as well as selling the farm's produce in Brighton, he was also awarded a contract by the town commissioners to clear night soil from the streets and cesspools. Night soil, of course, being sewage. Was it open sewage back then, then? Well, the sewer system in Brighton is Victorian, um, and this was the early 1800s. And according to the Southern Water, most waste was drained into cesspools at the back of properties. But I suppose if your house didn't have one or any of them overflowed, then yeah, it would still have been in in the street around the town. Oh, nice. It wasn't until 1860 that the council decided to build a system that would drain the waste into the sea instead. Oh, lovely. The eldest son of William and Mary inherited Preston in 1841. Now, I will give you one guess. Given the trend of this podcast, what this son's name was. Was it William? Yes, it was. So we've got another William. He was married to Eleanor Morris in 1842 and they had two children, baby William, who passed away at just five months old, and then a daughter, Ellen, who was born in 1848. At just five years old, Ellen became heir to Preston Manor when William passed away in 1853. Eleanor, William's widow, went on to marry Captain George MacDonald a year later and they continued to live at Preston Manor, raising Ellen and their three subsequent daughters, Flora, who was born in 1857 and later in... 1866 they also had twins called diana and christina christina was known as lily she for some reason didn't go by christina she chose lily in 1867 ellen married and as stipulated in william's will her husband veer went on to obtain a royal license so that he could assume the stanford name from what i could find they mainly resided in her husband's estates in wiltshire a london townhouse and eventually a property that they bought in madeira oh lovely So I assume that Eleanor and George were the main residents of Preston Manor in that time. Veer passed away in 1894 and three years later Ellen married Charles Thomas who also took the Stanford name and they lived in the estate left by Veer but then they took up residence in Preston Manor in 1905 following Ellen's mother's death and they went on to remodel the manor. That's why when you visit now it's very much an Edwardian style property. That's amazing, isn't it, that she got her husband to take the Stanford name? Well, it was stipulated in her father's will, and I think it's because he wanted his family name to carry on. It was very unusual back then, but it's a real power move, to be honest, and yeah, I think it's great. So if it's the spooky stuff that you've been waiting for, then here it is. Although Preston Manor had a long history of spooky occurrences, it seems the Stanford family were the ones who had the most experience with ghosts and such like. The southwest bedroom seems to have been a hotspot with sightings of disembodied hands moving over bedposts and strange noises coming from a large dressing cupboard. No, no, thank you. Disembodied hands on your bed? No. Yeah, it's a that bit, would, that's a bit I creepy, can't deal it? with that. A spirit known as the Lady in Grey was known to walk up and down the main staircase before disappearing. Some sources say she was also seen in other areas of the house, including the boiler room, and most reports of her are from the early 1900s. More modern sightings include one in 1960 of a ghost of a child playing on a ride on tractor in the grounds and a disembodied hand turning the doorknobs. Well, our son has a ride on tractor, so to me that's adorable but terrifying at the same time. Absolutely. Lights are also said to be turned on and off for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> By far the most famous ghost to be reported on Preston Manor is the Lady in White, who was first mentioned in the 16th century. 
owners of the manor were often aware of these stories before buying the property. I can't get my head around that. If someone told me that this big, very old house was known for sightings of ghosts i'd be like okay well no thank you i think i'll look somewhere else i mean it's hard though because a lot of the time it was just back into the family it's almost the same line of family moving in and out of the house so yeah i suppose and a lot of people thrive on it and i suppose status is more important than how freaked out you are by ghosts yeah definitely I actually have an extract written by Ellen's son John about an incident that his aunt Lily had recounted to him. Do you mind reading it? Miss Lily MacDonald tells me that in October or November 1896, as she was trying a new lampshade in the drawing room at Preston Manor, the ghost walked in at the door and came straight to her as if to speak. Miss M recognised it as the ghost, seeing her white dress and her hair hanging down. She followed the ghost through the billiard room to the foot of the stairs, then put her arm around her, saying, No, you don't go now. Miss M's arms went through the figure and it disappeared at once. She touched, She tried to touch the ghost. I mean, yeah, that's insane. I mean, that's what I, I wanted you to read it. imagine. Just... And Lily's 30 by this point, so she knows what she saw. It's not like it could be put down to a child's wild imagination. Oh, definitely not. Not long after this, Lily's twin sister is said to have seen the same ghost standing at the top of the stairs. I mean, it is worth noting that Ellen never believed the house was haunted, but her mother, Eleanor, was absolutely convinced that it was. And obviously, her sisters did describe their own experiences in detail. Following several reported sightings by various people, including guests at the manor, as well as other strange phenomena, which includes silk dresses being found cut into diamond patterns. A seance was held in the Cleves Room on the 11th of November 1896 with the help of medium Ada Goodridge Freer and Douglas Murray, who were apparently regarded as two of the most respected and accomplished psychical researchers in the UK at this time. The Cleves Room is named after Anne of Cleves. Apparently she stayed at the manor before retiring to a convent in nearby Falmer. Anne of Cleves was the fourth wife of Henry VIII, for anyone who isn't familiar with that particular historical saga. I'm sure we will cover Henry VIII and his six wives at some point on the podcast. It's something that we learn about in, is it year three or four of primary school? Yeah, I mean, it's something like that. I think it's something that's really deeply embedded into British, or certainly the English, I don't want to speak for everyone, psyche, and we learn about the Tudors very young. According to the Brighton Museum Learning Officer, Paula Wrightson, a transcript of the sounds still exists and it's indicated that a talking board was used. Yeah, Victorians were really into this sort of thing. They loved a seance, a standard after-dinner activity. Let's just try and talk to some dead people. Yeah, like you want to just, oh yeah, we just had a shot of sherry and we'll, oh, let's talk (laughs) to dead people now. Retire to the billiard room and and have a seance. A talking board is what we would now know as a Ouija board, but it wasn't actually marketed as such until 1901. That's actually a really interesting story that we might talk about on another episode. Okay. We're going to discuss Ada in quite a lot of depth, but just a quick note about Douglas Murray. He was a member of the Ghost Club, which on its website describes itself as the oldest organisation in the world associated with psychic research. It was founded in 1862, but has its roots in Cambridge University, where, in 1855, fellows at Trinity College began to discuss ghosts and psychic phenomena. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I pulled that description straight from their website. But I don't mean to be rude, but the Ghost Club. If you're studying at an Oxbridge University, could you not, between you, come up with a more imaginative name? Yeah. During the seance, Ada claims that she contacted a spirit who is in fact a nun who apparently was wrongly excommunicated from the church and buried in an unconsecrated ground, and the haunting would only stop if she was found and given a proper Christian burial. This nun would go on to become known as Sister Agnes. In 1897, the drains of the property had to be inspected just weeks after the seance. There are two pages in the Brighton Museum website about this. One cites an epidemic of sore throats, while the other states that a foul smell permeating the property was the reason for the work on the drains. Apparently the smell was so bad around Christmas in 1896 that the residents temporarily moved out and only the servants stayed. Whatever the reasons, workmen were brought in to investigate and on Friday the 29th of January 1897, a grisly discovery was made on the grounds of Presta Manor. The skeletal remains for a middle-aged woman were found under the terrace of what was the dining room. These bones were certified of being over 400 years old. Were these remains of Sister Agnes, the excommunicated nun, that had supposedly made contact during the seance? Ada and Douglas certainly thought so. The Burial Act of 1857 dictates that anyone exhuming human remains has to have a licence and the remains have to be reported to the coroner's office but there's no evidence as to whether that happened in this case, and according to the Bright Museum website, it's believed that the family discreetly had the skeleton reburied by a local gravedigger. But who exactly was Ada, and how reliable was the information she gave during the seance? Look, as much as I enjoy these stories, it's no secret to those who know me that I am very much a sceptic when it comes to mediums and other things of this nature. I think that's probably because a lot of the time it's quite easy to discredit people who claim to have gifts like second sight, etc. But also because I feel like some mediums or people who claim to be so will charge often grieving people extortionate amounts of money just to give very generic or vague information that if you want to believe them enough, you could make that fit into your narrative. I'm pretty sure in South Park that I think it's Stan tries to prove that mediums and things like that are frauds. And people are going, oh my God, how does he know this? How does because he know they're, this? Yeah, it's pulling information and then leaving it to people to make it fit. And I'm certainly not saying that everyone who claims to have these types of gifts or abilities is lying. I, I'm certainly not saying that. I just think you hear more about fraudsters than you do about any genuine cases or experiences. And obviously that does impact on your opinion. Yeah. But regardless of your beliefs, let's take a look at Ada's life and reputation and then everyone can make their own judgement on what you make of her claims. Ada was born on the 15th of May 1857 in Rutland, England. A lot of details of her early life are unclear, but both of her parents died while she was young and she was left in the care of her stepmother before going to a boarding school. There really isn't a lot of information out there and it's thought Ada herself is responsible for the lack thereof, but honestly that's not the part of her life we're interested in right now. She went on to become a member of several organisations, including the Folklore Society and the Society for Psychical Research. Ada wrote articles on these subjects for various journals and co-authored a magazine called Borderland, a quarterly review and index of psychic phenomena. Ada claimed to have second sight and would use the pseudonym Miss X, not only in relation to the articles she wrote, but also when she became involved in the investigation of hauntings as a medium. 
Ada was involved in other paranormal investigations around the same time as the one at Preston Manor. Most notably, the Clandon House hauntings in 1895 and that of Balakin House in 1897, the year after the sounds in Preston Manor. Clandon House is near Guildford in Surrey, and reports say that it's haunted by a woman who was wearing a white gown and was seen by several servants walking the grounds carrying a large hunting knife. That's scary. Yeah, I mean... What does she want with it? It would brighten the life out of me. Stories say that the servants actually shot at the figure and she just carried on walking and disappeared into the wall of the house. Oh, that's a whole nother level of creepy. It's generally believed that the spirit is that of Elizabeth Knight, a former mistress of the house who drowned herself in the lake. Ada claims to have seen the spirit herself inside the house, but it was alleged that her report was made up of stories from the domestic staff and not based on her own observations and experiences in the property. This is a contentious case because Ada actually told the owners of the house that it was not haunted, but then she told the Society for Psychical Research that she had seen the apparition that we just discussed. Balakin House had a reputation as being the most haunted house in Scotland, and rumours of ghosty goings on were known locally for between 20 and 30 years before the Society for Psychical Research became interested in the property in 1897. Lord Bute rented the property for two months and invited two investigators, one of which was Ada, along with around 35 other guests to stay for that period of time. Apparently the other guests were not aware of the property's reputation. Ada herself and various other guests alleged to have heard strange noises including knocking. They saw partial apparitions such as the head and body of a woman, disembodied hands and dog paws. After following instructions from a session using a talking board, Ada claims to have seen a figure of a woman, sometimes described as a nun, walking in the grounds, weeping and talking. She also said that she had her bedclothes torn off her by a poltergeist. Mm, that is my worst nightmare. Just You know when you're a child and you think you get scared in the night and you think if you just pull your covers up, you'll yeah. be safe. I know she wasn't a child, but I feel like we all revert to that when we're scared. Yeah, definitely. And to have them ripped off by this unseen force just sounds terrifying. A full account of the investigation was recorded in a book called The Alleged Haunting of Bee House, which was published in 1899. I think the owners of Balakin House really didn't want this book published, and that's why it's called Bee House, and a lot of the names had to be changed as well. Okay. It was also heavily reported on in the Times newspaper, and arguably this could be considered the beginning of the end for Ada. After these findings were published, others who were there came forward and said that apart from some noises in the night, they never really saw or experienced anything else while at the house. On the 8th of June 1987, J. Callender Ross argued in the Times that the haunting was in fact, and these are his words, no more than practical jokes and diseased imaginations. Diseased imaginations. He also said the whole thing was imbued with the suspicion and disgust that close contact with the SPR tends to excite. I mean, they're they're strong words, and he was clearly very critical. Unfortunately for Ada, Lord Bute, who had organised the whole thing, passed away a year after the book's publication in 1900. Very quickly, the Society of Psychical Research discredited the findings amongst the controversy and accusations of fraud which were being directed at Ada. The society turned their back not only on the investigation, but Ada herself, and she was disowned by the SPR. 
She dropped out of psychical research field and left England around this time. She travelled in the Middle East continuing her folklore studies and wrote several books about her experiences before eventually settling in the US. Ada died in St Luke's Hospital in New York on the 24th of February 1931. So, Matt, I'm really interested to hear, what do you think about Ada and what she has to say about the Lady in White? Well, the fact that she was discredited later on, it makes it very difficult to judge whether what she experienced in the manor really happened or was it another fake I think in a lot of ways Ada just got very lucky with the skeleton being found at Preston Manor. And when other people who saw the lady in white describe her, they seemed to know her long blonde hair. But if she was a nun, would she not have been wearing a habit so you wouldn't see her hair? Yeah. Ada also said that if Sister Agnes was found and given a proper burial, the haunting would stop. But there are reports of the lady in white being seen up until the early 1900s, so that's a few years after the body was discovered and moved. I did actually find a Q&A session on the Brighton Museum's Twitter feed and one of the questions was when was the lady in white last seen at Preston Manor? The response was that somebody saw her on the grounds in the 1970s. So that would clearly contradict what Ada said that if the body was in fact that of Sister Agnes and she was the lady in white, the hauntings would stop when she was found and reburied. But the hauntings didn't stop. No, they didn't, did they? The fact they carry on definitely throws a spanner in the works. Absolutely. Obviously Ada was discredited, but... That doesn't really hold any meaning as far as all the other sightings and experiences that many people seem to have had at Preston Manor. Maybe it really is haunted. Maybe the body that was found wasn't Sister Agnes and that's why the Lady in White has been seen since. The truth is we don't know and realistically we never will. Ellen was the last private owner of Preston Manor. Although she had a son from her first marriage, she thought John would probably demolish the house if he inherited it. So it would have been her grandson who inherited the manor, but he died of tuberculosis after fighting in the First World War at the age of just 28 without ever taking ownership. Both Charles and Ellen died in 1932, and Ellen left the manor and its contents to the Brighton Corporation, under the condition that the historic house would be preserved and used as a museum for exhibits relevant to Brighton and Sussex. As I said at the beginning of the episode, Preston Manor is still a museum, and I think it's safe to say that when we get the opportunity... We will be visiting and going on one of the tours. I mean, definitely. It'd be nice to go see it in person. Absolutely. So if anyone's listening and has made it to the end, thank you so much. Um, We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this, then please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. If you have any suggestions of topics you would like us to cover, email us at outoftimepodcast at outlook.com. I've actually set up an Instagram account where we will post photos and things related to each episode. I'll probably list our sources in there too. And that's Out of Time Podcast. So definitely pop on there, see, have a look, give us a couple of comments. and We'd love to hear if people enjoyed this episode. Again, thank you so much. This is a real passion project for us. It's something we've been talking about doing for a while and we really appreciate anyone who is listening. And if you enjoy it, please subscribe, please. And... Keep listening because there's so much more we want we to do. We have so much to talk about. Um, we hope you'll join us again for some more history, mystery, mythology and murder here on the Out of Time podcast. Mm-hmm.